HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman whose work inspires me. And today, I have as my guest someone who is investigating an industry and building an industry that I'm fascinated by. My guest is Ariana Yun, and she has founded Forested Foods. Welcome, Ariana. Thank you, Dana. Really delighted to be here today. I think I just want to start out by saying I want to know about how you first came to Ethiopia and you came to discover all of the riches that were in the forest and made this transition to create a company around what you found. So definitely not a linear journey. (laughs) I grew up in Hong Kong, so very cosmopolitan, and then went to the United States for my undergrad and ended up working in management consulting for a couple of years. And so when I was in consulting at that point, two years in, 24, was still pretty cosmopolitan, but was itching to get my hands a bit dirty in some social impact work. And so when I went into consulting, I worked at a firm called Booz Allen Hamilton. One of the things that was really great about being at Booz Allen was that we, we worked with clients across all sectors, so the U.S. government, commercial, and nonprofit. And a part of Booz Allen that was really special for me was being able to understand 
kind of the workings, the culture in different sectors, because at that point I was getting quite interested in public-private partnerships and really interested in private sector-led development, but also understanding that at some point to really drive scalable change, the government has to be involved as well. I, at that point, two years in, was just looking for a way to take short-term leave from the firm and volunteer. And really the only criteria for this short-term leave was that it would be skills-based volunteering where I could actually leverage the few skills I had built as a young professional at that time in whatever I was doing. So as a part of my research, I found this NGO called TechnoServe. They're DC-based, but they are a global NGO that works across several countries in Africa and Latin America. And the work that they do, it's really reflected in their tagline, which is business solutions to poverty. And so what they do is working with enterprising people, a lot of smallholder farmers, farmer cooperatives, unions, small medium enterprises and basically work with these people to build their capacity so that they can improve their incomes through their professions and hopefully, you know, pull themselves out of poverty and and in a sustainable way. And so January 2015, having no exposure, very little knowledge of the African continent, let alone Ethiopia, and and just got on a plane and and went there. What made you just get on a plane and pick that place? I think it was driven largely by dissatisfaction with how I was spending my time. So working at Booz Allen, it was an incredible experience professionally and also personally. Like some of my best friends are still some of those early friendships I made there. But I was just spending so many hours at work. And I think at some point you realize that if you're spending such a large proportion of your time doing X, like what really is that X? And is there something else that you could be doing that felt more worthwhile with your very valuable time? I think probably the most complex Lex emotions related to going was kind of like leaving people behind. Like at that point in time, like most of my closest friends were there. I was actually in this like incredible relationship. And so the, those were probably like the, the few hesitations that I had. And when you said that you identified the skills that you had and you're very humble about them, but I'm curious what those skills were that you brought with you. That's a good question because I suppose the skills that I thought I was bringing were not the skills that were the most valuable when I got there. I think at the time, what I was thinking the skills were that I could bring was the ability to develop strategic plans, understanding like change management strategy, being able to kind of support in project management or to assess the performance of programs and even kind of design programs. But when I got to the ground in Ethiopia, I actually think that the skill sets that are kind of fundamentally critical before we look at the list of traditional management consulting skills that I rattled off are really a lot of empathy, curiosity, and an ability to just like get stuff done. During the time that you were in Ethiopia for TechnoServe, what did you discover about what you wanted to do next? So I was actually only supposed to be there for five months before returning to the US to Booz Allen. But basically the moment I kind of stepped foot in a coffee cooperative meeting, like a week into my time in Ethiopia, yeah, just was like pretty enamored by the agriculture sector. So long story short, I ended up quitting my job at Booz Allen and staying there for about three years before going to grad school. And when you say you became enamored with the sector, what made you fall in love? And what did you learn that changed your mind? I think a part of 
that enamorment was just like my own surprise at my own ignorance <laughs> growing up in a place like Hong Kong and just spending a lot of times in like food obsessed cities, which I love. But realizing that I had never spent much time at all thinking about where food comes from. And then all of a sudden being in a place like Ethiopia where 80-85% of the population, so 85 million people are in farming and producing the food that we get to enjoy kind of at the end of the supply chain. And so I think that kind of scarce difference between my exposure to food and agriculture before Ethiopia and within my first week, that kind of amplified my curiosity and just like this feeling that I needed to like learn so much more. For me, just realizing that if I could do good work in this sector, there would just be tremendous opportunity to impact the lives of hundreds of millions of people. And when you thought, huh, I could affect that number of people, was that because you wanted to create a replicable system in terms of agriculture that would be possible around the world? So I think when I was thinking about scale of impact, I definitely didn't have any sort of ideas of what I would be doing. It was more of just this feeling like, huh, okay, this is a really interesting space that could have a lot of impact. And I guess one of the reasons why that was kind of defining in my life at that point, because prior Ethiopia and TechnoServe and kind of falling in love with the agriculture sector, I was basically all over the place. You saw my my LinkedIn and just like the the variety of things that I was doing, even growing up in Hong Kong and having three majors at Syracuse and choosing to go into consulting because I could get lots of exposure. I, I basically had professional ADHD. And so also that feeling of like wanting to stay in agriculture for me was, I think it was like a defining moment in a direction that I knew I was headed. You mentioned your LinkedIn. And so I'm just going to take this moment to ask you this question that I find irresistible. In high school, you seem to be the best all around leader imaginable. I'm just curious to hear more about how you feel about leadership and the leadership roles you took as a very young person in high school and, and tell people all the, <laughs> what you're doing in high school. You know, what's really funny is growing up, I was very, very shy. And even to this day, I actually despise performance. But I would say I probably stepped up as a leader more in middle school. So I think starting middle school, I was like the middle school student body president and then also ended up being the high school student body president. I was really interested in sports and the arts. And so started playing volleyball and basketball in middle school and was the captains of my middle school teams and then ultimately the captains of my high school teams. And then I mentioned I was really interested in art. I actually for a while saw myself going to art school and kind of made like a last minute change towards advertising. But I think because of my interest in art, I was drawn to to supporting the school with the yearbook. And our school was uniquely pretty intense about yearbook. It was an entire course. <laughs> Somehow I got nominated to be the yearbook editor. And yeah, this is how intense it was, was that the yearbook editor is chosen as a sophomore because in your sophomore year, you're tapped to be like the yearbook like co-editor as a junior with the expectation that you commit to being the editor your senior year. Just for those of you who are listening, I think it's just important to know that Ariana has many interests, many curiosities. So let's go back to, so you spent 
three years in, in Ethiopia, you stayed and then you came back and went to Yale. Yeah, so maybe I can also share more about the TechnoServe experience. It's really, I think, that accumulated experience that inspired Forested Foods. So when I decided to stay on at TechnoServe for three years, what was really neat was that I ended up being kind of like their ad hoc consultant. So whatever they needed help with, they would just throw me on the project. And I'll give a couple of examples of their type of work in a bit. But I think what was really special about that opportunity was just getting so much exposure to different value chains and crops and also different programmatic regions in the country and also like donors or corporate partners that TechnoServe works with. So for example, like some of the work that we would do in Ethiopia is work with Diageo, who was entering the Ethiopian market through their acquisition of a local brewery. And basically what we would do for Diageo is help them build their raw supply chain of malt barley. So the idea was that if they were to sell their products in the Ethiopian market, they should play a role in developing the economy in Ethiopia, meaning create incomes and improve livelihoods of smallholder farmers who were also supplying them with their malt barley. We did a lot of work in coffee, of course, being the birthplace of coffee Arabica. So like Nespresso worked with TechnoServe and has been working with TechnoServe for years. And in Ethiopia, we were working on a project to help Nespresso build more equitable and sustainable supply chains of coffee. So for a lot of the coffee programs, it related to kind of getting groups of farmers together, training like tens of thousands of smallholder coffee farmers to increase their yields and quality of coffee. And then further up the supply chain, we would work with farmer cooperatives and farmer unions to build their managerial capacity to access loans, establish processing facilities, make sure that they were processing coffee in a way that was as sustainable as possible. And then lastly, helping them with the managerial capacity to actually export their products. And so these are kind of examples of like corporate partnerships, which is really exciting, right? Because it shows that the private sector is really looking for ways to invest in more sustainable and equitable supply chains. Like it's not just greenwashing or, or like CSR effects, but actually baked into their core business. So so over my three years with TechnoServe in Ethiopia, I was able to do quite a bit of work. And it was actually a project that I was working with for TechnoServe with the Swedish government or the, the Swedish International Development Agency. And I was developing a strategy on how we could combat deforestation through improving incomes of forest-based farmers from non-timber forest products. And I know it's quite jargony, but it, it is exactly what it sounds like. So the forest that we were looking at, which is a subtropical forest where forest-based coffee thrives, but also at the time was studying the potential of forest-based honeys and different spices that the forest communities could start cultivating in a commercial manner. And the idea was to kind of implicitly drive sustainable forest resource management. I'd love to have you just tell us a little bit more about farming in the forest, because I think there's a, a little bit of an understanding about it. But when I think of forests, I don't think of honeybees and I don't really think of coffee. I mean, I think of shade grown coffee, but not in forests. And so are these foods that have been harvested from the forest by the local communities over millennia, over generations? Or is this something that has been introduced recently? So what's interesting about agroforestry is it was 
commonly practiced, you know, back when we were foragers uh, or when more of the world was foraging. And then I guess with the industrial agricultural revolution, I think agroforestry became less common, especially in places like Europe and the U.S. And I almost feel like now agroforestry is kind of having a comeback, which is very exciting. So to make it I guess, as simple as possible, agroforestry is basically the simultaneous cultivation of trees and agricultural crops or livestock and and vice versa. So you can think about it as incorporating trees onto existing agriculture cultivation or cultivating agriculture within forests. And so we're more focused on that second category right now in forested foods journey. And we are basically engaging farmers in forest farming which means cultivating agriculture within intact forests. So it's it's very possible that forested foods will get into reforestation in the future, but where we're starting is really about conserving native, critically biodiverse forests. And so in places like Ethiopia and, and also largely in the global south, there are just like hundreds and hundreds of millions of communities that live in and around forested areas. And so what forested foods is doing is building a network of forest communities and farmers and engaging them in the cultivation or wild foraging of different products that grow within their forest. And so depending on where we are in the world, that will affect the portfolio of products. Um, But where we're starting today in Ethiopia, we're specifically working in three different forests that are in the southwest Afro-Montane region of Ethiopia and kind of similar to the project that I mentioned where I had the inspiration to start forested foods in the first place there's forest-based coffee and honey and spices and so a lot of the coffee trees in Ethiopia are cultivated in the forest so they'll plant the coffee trees there is wild coffee as well but most of the farmers that we work with they have like grown their coffee trees from seedlings beekeeping is actually very, very common. So just kind of fun fact, but Ethiopia is by far and large the largest producer of honey on the African continent and actually the 10th largest producer of honey in the world. And the way that they have traditionally conducted beekeeping is not the way that we think about beekeeping with the Langstroth box hives. So I would say well over 90% of beekeeping in Ethiopia is traditional beekeeping where they will build this kind of like hollowed out log and kind of hang this like log-like structure high up into trees. And so beekeeping and forest conservation in a place like Ethiopia go really well hand in hand. I mean, also other countries, but the reason why it goes so hand in hand in a place like Ethiopia is because the most common place for beekeeping to occur in Ethiopia is actually in the forest. And so the bees are pollinating the forest and also have like access to incredible high quality forage from the forest trees and botanicals. And they have that mutual relationship. Maybe it's a good time to talk a little bit about the honey that you're producing from forested foods in the Maritza line. So our vision at Forested Foods is to be 
sourcing, processing, and supplying a wide portfolio of different forest-based products. And, you know, in five years, we hope that we're not just producing single-origin honeys from indigenous trees, but also indigenous spices and herbs and fruits and one day gums and resins like frankincense and gum arabica. But the reason why we started with honey was actually to be a bit more pragmatic about launching forested foods while I was in grad school. So fall of 2017, I matriculated into Yale School of Management and I went into school knowing that I wanted to start forested foods and had this idea of this agroforestry enterprise. So the program was a two-year program, kind of got in there knowing that I would spend my first year kind of designing like what does a proof of concept look like for this global agroforestry venture I wanted to build and decided that the best way to prove that we could do this was to build just one supply chain of one product from forest to international shelf. And so I guess kind of putting my consulting hat on, I had developed this prioritization matrix where I was looking at different products that I could start with. So honey was on there, cardamom, long pepper, gum arabica, frankincense, avocados, just like I think 10 products. And then I kind of evaluated them based off of things that would be important to a successful pilot. So do I know farmers who produce these products at a quality that I'm happy with? How far away is the forest that I want to source these products from? Does the seasonality of the product aligned to my summer in between my first and second years of business school. Um, basically, honey, honey came out on top. And at that point in time, I was actually not super thrilled about starting with honey because I'd actually done a research assessment in Ethiopia about the potential of Ethiopian honey and like what were the systemic bottlenecks that kind of kept Ethiopian honey in Ethiopia and, and not unlocking more potential for beekeepers. And so I was like intimately aware of those issues. So when honey came out on top from my matrix, I was like, oh, dang, but decided to go go with it anyway. But what were the obstacles that you had identified that made you think that it, it might be challenging? So honey is one of these like incredibly magical products, maybe the most magical agricultural product that has kind of been honestly like quite bastardized by price cutting and adulteration. You know, when you think about how honey was used in like Pharaoh's time or like the beginning of any sort of civilization, it was always this like incredibly prized, like sacred product. But over time with global trade, we have like completely lost kind of our sense of what honey truly is and just like how much work goes into producing honey beekeepers and bees and ecosystems and to be honest like the price of honey traded on the global commodities market is just like way too low and so that's kind of one of the largest reasons and kind of tied to that like unsustainably like low price of honey in the market I also felt that there wasn't kind of like this sufficient mass awareness and appreciation of what honey is and what it could be. And so I knew that if we went with honey, that a lot of my effort would have to go into educational marketing, which in theory is quite fun, but I just knew it would be a lot of work, but also exciting because you realize that there's an opportunity to kind of like help people reimagine what this product is. And then on the Ethiopian side of things, you know, despite Ethiopia having ginormous opportunity to generate more income for millions of beekeepers if we could do this a lot of the beekeeping as i mentioned is conducted through traditional means and because beekeeping in ethiopia is 
largely tied to forest ecosystems. That means that the smallholder farmers and beekeepers, they're even more rural and fragmented than other smallholder farmers. And so from like an operations perspective, it would just take longer to get to each of them. One of the things I felt was fascinating is in tasting the honeys and you guys who are listening, these honeys are so distinct and they're so layered and they really bear very little resemblance to your honey in a squeezy bottle of a bear. But there are, I think I received maybe eight different small tastings of honey and they each come, I guess, from a different tree. And so... I'd love to know about how you decided to try so many different kinds of honey. And are there more out there? Like, did you actually have to choose among 30 and you just cut it back to eight trees? I probably first started understanding the concept of like monofloral single origin honeys when I was just like talking with the farmers about their honey products. So when you're at the field level in these like tiny towns that are kind of like the node to enter the forest and you're like talking to the the local people there about honey they refer to the honey from the source and and it's it's all seasonal right so in one forest that we work in gara forest in aromia region you know in april and may the honey that you see is like the the creamier lighter honey called gateme and then like a couple of months before that like in february you'll see like a darker honey which is the grawa honey and so I think just like hearing that over and over again, I was like, right, honey is different based off of like what floral nectar it's being produced from. But what I realized was that it was just such an underappreciated concept compared to like what it could be. And, you know, having worked pretty intimately within the coffee industry for several years while I was at TechnoServe and also being like a lover myself of specialty coffees, single origin coffees, I was just like, this is so strange that the concept of single origin honey is not more of a thing. (laughs) And I would say like the sensory experience of single origin honeys, it's just so obvious and pronounced when you do a tasting because depending on where the honey largely comes from, it will result in a different color, a different texture, a different flavor in terms of like taste and smell and kind of going back to like how we got here where that appreciation has been lost over time is really like in global trade i I would say like the way honey trade works and honestly probably for a lot of other crops is you have these massive trading houses who are procuring honeys from different seasons different forests different countries and just blending it all together and it's basically like taking like all the wine grapes in the world and blending them. And I think what was really fascinating to me from a product perspective was that we could actually just have our beekeepers slightly more diligently manage their beekeeping and hives around the distinct flowering seasons of different indigenous botanicals and basically just keep those honey harvests disaggregated from each other so that people can actually have like a taste of place. It is so fascinating about the different honeys and the monoflorals. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. 
As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. We are learning about Ethiopian honey today with Ariana. So you've created a market for the local farmers. Your greater goal is as I understand it, in part conservation, right? Like we shouldn't be clear-cutting timbers. We shouldn't be clear-cutting forests. Can the communities make enough money in honey or whatever forested foods you're talking about to indeed stop the industrial interests from clear-cutting and wrecking the environment? There are lots of places around the world where deforestation is most at risk of kind of like commercial investments and governments kind of being stuck between like a rock and a hard place of like fueling quicker economic development versus conserving natural resources. So what's great about being in Ethiopia, at least as our starting base, is that in general, the government has been really keen and a bit more patient about trying to figure out how to conserve natural resources, but fuel economic growth. Also in a place like Ethiopia, where 80-85% of your population is a smallholder farmer, it actually forces them to work harder to find inclusive ways to develop the economy because if not then you've got civil war and so right now we are not touching the problem around i guess commercial investment driven deforestation we will be at that policy table one day but not today (laughs) and so what our vision is at least as we try and combat deforestation through the partnership of smallholder farmers is basically like show the farmers show the local government stakeholders eventually get kind of national recognition that this model is effective at improving incomes and livelihoods of smallholder farmers through conserving the forest and to kind of use that as a case study to kind of inspire the government and other governments that this is possible. And so to narrow in specifically like how that would look like for the smallholder farmers. So a lot of the farmers that we work with generate majority of their income from coffee. In a place like Ethiopia, that's well known as being the birthplace of coffee Arabica, they have pretty decent market access to sell their coffee, which is phenomenal. But one of the biggest threats to deforestation in Ethiopia is clearing some of the native forests to plant more coffee trees. And so the reason why this is a problem, even though they're technically trees, it's it's really about biodiversity loss. And so like a huge part of what we're trying to do is not just preserve tree coverage, not just preserve ancient trees that provide irreplaceable ecosystem services. It's also to create market demand for biodiversity. And so, you know, like we don't have a right or power to go to farmers and be like, hey, don't grow so much coffee or don't clear the trees for coffee or timber. You know, what we think our role is is in the market is to go to farmers and be like, hey, you're producing, selling coffee. That's incredible. Did you know that there are buyers that would love for you to produce these different products at different times of the year that can complement your agricultural activities and help you maybe increase income that you're doing from kind of like your subsistence, like honey 
production or spice production, or in addition to increasing incomes from different agriculture activities, we can actually help you create new income streams. What's interesting about starting with honey is that because we're doing single origin honey and really trying to explore and produce honey from distinct flowering seasons of different trees, we're actually creating new streams and seasons of income generation for the farmers from honey seasons that they were not traditionally beekeeping and producing honey around. So do you have an idea what your next project or agricultural product would be? So after honey, I would say probably spices and herbs. And the reason for that is we we know that our beekeepers are producing those anyway. And so the idea is to like, you know, work with the same farmers year round. And I think for us, a next step is actually to start investing a bit more effort in wholesale and the ingredients industries. So Marisa and our single origin honey line, that will always exist. But I think with COVID, I've had the time to kind of spend more time thinking and not just like putting out fires. And I think the past few months have really brought me back to, you know, our main vision to demonstrate that ancient forests can be much more lucrative for all conserved through agroforestry versus destroyed. And really what we're doing is harmonizing agriculture production with forest conservation. And the magic in that model and our ability to work with like hundreds of millions of smallholder farmers across like hundreds of millions of hectares of forested land, like that really works best at scale. And so because of that, I've recently been dedicating a bit more time to identifying kind of like larger scale buyers who can absorb more volume. And so I think with spices, those would also be a better vehicle to start pivoting to wholesale. When you talk about pivoting and you also talk about COVID, so many people have had to hit pause, reconsider, pivot. What were your lessons from the pivot and the the hard part about this time of tremendous uncertainty? I mean, obviously the, the travesties of COVID are horrible. But on a personal level, it kind of has given me this space and time that I think I needed from like running faster than I could. And I think to a degree, we were fortunate in that like we were just too small to fail. I guess when COVID hit earlier this year, maybe just like half a year out of graduating from Yale School of Management, And so was still just kind of getting on my feet anyway. And at that point in time with Marisa, we had mostly been targeting kind of like fine dining, upscale food service, which really unfortunately was one of the hardest hit industries. And so when that happened, we had already been kind of considering testing out different markets like direct to consumer, also like more wholesale. And so when we started kind of foreshadowing that it would just be very hard to work with the food service industry. We just started making those pivots that we had already been thinking of. And I think working in a place like Ethiopia, it's it's really never about your plan A. Like I get very nervous when I don't have a plan D. And so I think just by virtue of, you know, having to operate with lots of contingency plans with COVID, we were at least like emotionally ready to to like make those pivots. So we actually were able to form a partnership with the distributor Natura during COVID. So we were actually talking with them before COVID about them supporting us getting to restaurants. And then when COVID happened, they, alongside other specialty food importers that serviced food service, had to pivot. And so many of them did that very gracefully with um, direct-to-consumer grocery boxes. And so we started with Natura with our actual like branded product direct-to-consumer. And then 
basically also started doing tons of outreach to, you know, breweries, cosmetics companies, other food companies that we felt could align with our values for deforestation-free, regenerative agroforestry products. And so it hasn't been easy, but we we kind of kind of assume that it's par for the course. I think for me, probably like the greatest realization was that we just do not have time to wait to develop more sustainable solutions to how we operate as a society. If people want to know more about agroforestry, are there layman's texts that you would recommend that they read or people to follow in addition to you? Yeah, um, so there's two organizations that immediately come to mind, Terra Genesis International, as well as ReNature. They're organizations that I would kind of consider them like ecosystem facilitators in the agroforestry space. But I think Terra Genesis International, as well as ReNature, have published just like incredible like overviews, I think fairly digestible content related to agroforestry and kind of like how it links to the way we eat, food systems, conservation, and the environment. I look forward to digging into that. And at the end of each episode of Speaking Broadly, I asked my guests two questions. One is, is there a woman in hospitality whose work you admire, who you feel deserves to be better known? So uh, one of my peers, I guess entrepreneur peers, when I was at Yale School of Management, her name is Alexia Akbai, and she's building a venture right now called Symbrosia, and she is developing a production system to commercially produce a variety of seaweed called Asparagopsis taxiformis, but this seaweed, if you replace just 2% of cattle feed with this seaweed, it can reduce the methane emissions by over 90%. And she doesn't even eat meat. She's a vegetarian. (laughs) And so I think one of the reasons why I love her so much and why we're friends is because, you know, she's such a systems thinker and she cares so deeply about the environment, but is also quite practical about it. Like meat is never going to go away. Plant-based meat's super cool. It's an industry that needs to grow, but cattle is never going away. And so the way that she's trying to tackle the massive issue of greenhouse gases from cattle methane is to reduce methane emissions from cattle through this kind of like magical seaweed feed supplement. Okay, I I think she's a perfect person to learn about. How amazing. And the last question, is there a product or ingredient that makes our life easier in the kitchen that you want to share that most people don't know about? So there's, there's a new snacks company that I'm following pretty closely and super excited about is called Moonshot Snacks. And most people may not have heard about it because it's actually just launching right now. And it's a part of a larger venture called Planet Forward. Um, So it was started by Julia Collins, who's this incredibly inspiring entrepreneur. I believe she was the first Black female entrepreneur to build a unicorn company before she decided to dedicate her career to regenerative agriculture. And the reason why I'm super bullish and excited about her snacks food company Moonshot Snacks is because she's developing a platform, you know, where her product is the impact. She's taking on the responsibility to produce delicious snacks that are created from regeneratively produced agricultural ingredients. And all we have to do is eat it. And I just, I love that because 
she's kind of like on like the opposite side of the supply chain as I am, but kind of working towards the same goal. And I think one thing that I'm pretty conscious of with Forested Foods and Marisa is that, you know, we don't want to overwhelm people with the complexities of climate change and biodiversity conservation and forestry. Like, obviously, it'd be great if everyone around the world kind of knew the basics and knew why it was so important to our humanity. But to be a bit more practical about combating climate change, like we want to be engaging people in much easier ways. And for us, that's through the more like delightful, engaging world of specialty food. And I think that Moonshot Snacks is kind of hitting that nail on the head. Ariana, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I know you're in Hong Kong, so the time zones are flipped and it's quite late. I appreciate your time. And this is absolutely fascinating. I hope all of you listening feel inspired and educated as I do. And I want all of you to go out and check out the Marisa Honey. And if it's available on Natura, fantastic big platform for all of us. Thank you and have a great day. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.